Father, you are the gracious, merciful one who seeks to lead us along the path of righteousness in spite of the fact that we are much like Israel in the sense that we murmur and complain and and often try to um, alter the path. And yet, Father, you're patient with us and you continue to lead us by the power of your good Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord, that we can trust you, that you will direct us this hour, that you will give us insight and understanding into the Word of God. I pray, Father, that in every Sunday school class this morning, your presence will be tangible. And I ask that as the uh, missionary program is going on in the service right now, and then again at 11 o'clock, that you will bless that hour and that you will anoint and empower uh, the message. Uh, We are thankful for those who are responding, Lord, in one way or another, and we trust that your anointing will continue to be there. Lord, I ask that you will remove every extraneous thought and anything that would uh, hinder the working of your spirit this morning in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will turn to the 11th chapter of Numbers, Numbers chapter 11, I'd like to begin this morning by reading the first three verses. And what's very interesting about these first three verses is they come like a cold slap in the face. (laughs) You've been reading along through the first 10 chapters of Numbers and studying along and and you're seeing the organization and we kept, you know, I kept emphasizing the fact that it said, and the people did what God said and what the word came through Moses, the people obeyed, they're gotten ready for the journey, they're, they're launched on the journey, and then wham, we get the first three verses of chapter 11. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And the people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. One of the things you discover as as you read through Scripture is that God knows the needs of His people. He knows your need this very hour. He knows your need tomorrow and the day after that. Uh, God is not unaware of these things. And in spite of the wording here, the wording here does not mean that all of a sudden God discovered these people were griping. You know, I mean, God knew they would gripe before they ever left Sinai. But God not only knows our needs, but he has compassion on us. I mean, that's what we keep hearing about. Our God is a compassionate God. And those who, who read the Old Testament with a particular bent of mind, that they're going to try to discover how harsh God is. Skip over the numerous passages which talk about the compassion of God, the compassion of God. I mean, Israel has been miraculously delivered from Egypt. I mean, this wasn't a walk in the sun on an April afternoon. I mean, this was a miraculous provision by God to bring them uh, to the point of receiving the word at Mount Sinai. And God had graciously provided for them. Day after day, without fail, their needs were met. Their needs were always met. And none of the Israelites who trusted in the Lord was ever without food. None was malnourished. And none was suffering from exposure. 
God had provided for their every need. And yet, here we have just the first three days of the journey. After the 10 or 11 months there at Sinai, they've started out now, and they've only gone three days. And as I mentioned to you last time, considering all the people that you're moving and all the flocks that you're moving, they might not be any more than 20 miles from Mount Sinai. In fact, they could probably trot up the nearest hill and look back and see Sinai from where they're camping. And here they are beginning to murmur and complain. Why? Because travel in the desert's a little bit hard and because the food lacks variety. <laughs> three days into the journey, three days. <laughs> the human race is by nature a grumbling race. And it's really hard to get people charged up, but it's real easy to get them depressed. <laughs> you may have noticed. It doesn't take much. You've got to really be a cheerleader for a long time to really get people up. But it doesn't take but a little word by somebody just caught in passing before it spreads like wildfire and, and people begin to think in a negative manner. They are suffering from severe myopia. They can't see past the end of their nose. Totally consumed by their temporary discomforts. Oh, the road was a little rocky. It got a little hot today, dear. You know, and what do we have to look forward to? More manna. Oh, no. They're wallowing in self-pity. And that's a real easy thing to do, to wallow in self-pity. They're not focusing here on God's provision. Stopping to think now. God has not missed a day of providing the food and the water we have needed ever since we left Egypt. God has not missed a day. No, that's not what they're thinking about. Don't think about that at all. They don't think about his mind-boggling promises. You know, he gives the Ten Commandments from, the Mount, from Mount Sinai. He gives all the corollary commandments. But he says, if you will do these things, I will bless you beyond your ability to even comprehend it. No, do they focus on that? No. The food's barring. The trip was tough, and so they start complaining. They start griping. And you'll notice that God reacts immediately to this situation. And he reacts decisively. Scripture in this passage says that fire came into the camp. There is no description here of what this fire was, but it's a fire of judgment. But it's also a fire of purging. Fire has at least two purposes in Scripture, to judge and to purge, to destroy, to cleanse and refine. And that double purpose is to be seen here. Now, are we talking about bolts of lightning coming out of the heavens? You know, torching things at the edge of the camp? Maybe. We don't know. It's very possible. But what we are told in this passage is that mercifully the fire burned on the outskirts of the camp. I mean, God could have sent it right in the heart of the, well, not really right in the heart. You want to burn up the tabernacle, but right around it, you know. No, it's out on the outskirts, we're told, on the very fringe of the camp. Now, maybe that's where most of the gripers were. I don't know. But that's where the fire burned. And the scripture seems to indicate that many died. Many were destroyed in this fire. And, and what do the people do? They immediately run to Moses and say, Moses, we're in trouble. And what does Moses do? Faithfully he intercedes. Faithfully he intercedes. Moses could have said, you guys caused it upon yourselves. You ask God. I'm through with it. He could have done that. 
And there are times, I think, when we almost feel like giving up praying for someone else or for some other organization or group of people. But we dare not because we're really no different from anyone else when it comes to that. And we're told that with his intercession, the, the fire, literally in the Hebrew, sank down. It died out. But the people commemorated the place. They said, we will name this Tabarah, which means burning burning, the place of burning. So there will be this spot by which this will be commemorated only three days out into the journey, and already they have faced a judgment, a purging of God. But you'll notice, God does not say, okay, they're griping, I'll tolerate it for a little while, and they'll gripe some more, I'll tolerate, and then I'll deal with it. He just hits it right now. Sort of, I guess, maybe an example to us as parents. Deal with what needs to be dealt with quickly and decisively, and don't let it drag out. How does this relate to us? Are we anything like Israel? Do we have a tendency to overload our circuits with anxiety because of the immediate problem we're facing? How do I ever get through this problem? This thing is overwhelming me. I can't handle it. Do we make molehills into mountains? I, I think it's really important that we try to view our circumstances from God's perspective. Because when you're down in the middle of the circumstances, you can't see beyond them. But when you get the big view from God's perspective, then our mountains are shrunken back down to the molehills, which they really are from God's point of view. What did God do for Israel? As we see repeated over and over again in the Old Testament, he kept pointing out what he had done for them in the past. I mean, why is there so much in the Old Testament that's repetitive? You keep coming to a recounting of what God did for Israel, particularly in the wilderness. I mean, this is recounted numerous times uh, throughout the Old Testament. Why does God do that? Because we have short-term memories. We need to reflect upon how far God has brought us to this place. And we need to see where he's taking us. And then if we see how far we've come and where we're headed, then this little obstacle becomes what it really is, and that is a little obstacle. This realization, I think, will, will transform our attitude. This, this viewpoint will transform uh, our attitude. And it kind of radically changes the way in which problems affect us. And, and there's a passage, I, I know that you've probably read it many times or heard it read many times, but 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, reading at verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, it's pretty easy for us to read that passage and say, yeah, that's what we ought to do, but it's real difficult to translate that into reality. Because the temporal world in which we live is constantly hitting us in the face. You know, we feel in, in our emotions, we feel a certain way. 
and it's easy to be overcome by anxiety and by depression and by fear. And what we need to learn is the truth of this, that although our problem may not seem like a molehill, it may seem like a mountain to us. The scripture says it is momentary and it is light. You might say, well, it's easy for Paul to say because he's not in my situation. Well, I have to realize Paul said this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And he's comparing it. Now, this is not to deny that people go through hard, hard things. And sometimes when you read about or, or you know these people, you wonder, how in the world do people bear up under this? But we have to kind of view it again from God's perspective. From God's perspective, no matter how difficult our life has been, it's, doesn't, it pales compared to the eternal weight of glory. Because, you know, how long can we suffer in this life? Well, you know, if we happen to be unfortunately long-lived, we might be able to suffer for a hundred years. But what's that compared to timeless eternity? What's that even compared to church history? Or to the history of God's dealings with mankind over the past six, seven thousand years? It's but a moment. And if we can kind of keep that perspective, I think it helps us through hard times. You know, you, you've, uh, you've all heard the, the little saying that came from one of the, the southern preachers. Uh, he kept emphasizing the um, fact that troubles, the, in, when you read it in the King James, it says it came to pass <laughs> that this was going to happen. He says, remember that, it came to pass. <laughs> <laughs> It isn't going to be here a long time. It just came to go by, to pass. And that's a, that's a good perspective, I think. Chapter 11 of Numbers, uh, verse 4. And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt and the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the garlics, and the onions, and the garlics. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to eat except this manna. Now manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of dallium. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones, or beat it in the mortar, and boil it in the pot, and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. The scripture tells us here that the rabble, the rabble here, we're told in verse 4, who were among them had greedy desires, and also Israel. Now the rabble were the non-Hebrews who had exited Egypt with the Hebrews. They're the ones who said, whoa, these people are getting out of here. Let's join up with them. We want to get out of here too. And uh, so these non-Hebrews, they might have been Semitic. You know, we, we don't know uh, who, who they were. But anyway, they would attach themselves and, and they were with Israel and they traveled through all this and they experienced Mount Sinai and they heard the promises and they heard the word. But the scripture says they became lustful for food other than manna. They remembered the abundance of fish and cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic that they had had in Egypt. You notice the passage says, which they ate free. Isn't that a joke? <laughs> they conveniently for, for, forgot the fact that they were slaves in Egypt. You know? They were living under oppression when they ate those foods. And I, I really think that they have blown the, their, their, their remembrance of the quality and quantity of that all out of proportion to reality. 
And can you imagine that the Egyptians provided for their slaves this wonderful array of fine foods? <laughs> they make it to sound like they were going to a, you know, a rich restaurant where they had all these wonderful things to eat, you know. I mean, the fish had probably passed its finest hour, and these vegetables probably needed garlics and onions and the fish too in order to be edible. But that's all they can remember. Most of us, I try to emphasize this in my history classes, we have to recognize the fact that you and I live in an unusual time. I mean, refrigeration didn't exist prior to the, what, late 19th century. And so you can imagine the condition food was in in most societies most of the time. Uh, that was one of the reasons why Europe was so keen on establishing all-water all route to the, to the uh, spice islands so they could get cheaper spices because you had to do something with the food in the condition it was uh, for most Europeans there in Europe. And, and so, you know, <laughs> we, we live in a, in, a, in a blessed hour as far as uh, that is concerned. After all, these poor people had nothing to eat except a perfect food. Food which today, if we had it, would be at the very top of all nutrition charts. It would be there for good health, it would be there for strength, it would be there for stamina. And, uh, of course, to top it all off, it looked good, smelled good, tasted good, and was always available. What a wretched situation in which to have to live. But they are a perfect example of human nature. Human nature always cries out for whatever seems to be denied. If we can't have it, we want it. I mean, we practice this with, with children, don't we? We use negative psychology. <laughs> you, you, you want a child to eat the beans, so you tell them you can't have any more beans. Not give you beans anymore. And this is when they're younger. <laughs> and then they decide, I want beans. <laughs> The, the desire for whatever is denied. And what is the tragedy of this in, in direct understanding here is that they were willing to throw away everything that God had done for them for over a year and all the promises he had made for them on Mount Sinai, they were going to throw it away to gratify what? A momentary physical lust. I want meat. Does that remind you of anyone we studied about a few years ago? Yeah, I think so. Let me just go back to that again just for a moment. 25th chapter of uh, Genesis. 25th chapter of Genesis, you remember uh, the little story, right, of Jacob and Esau. In verse 29, when Jacob had cooked a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please give me a let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name is called Edom, which means the red. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die, so of what use then is my birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave him bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose up and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. That is human nature. To give away the eternal for a momentary temporal delight. It's the way the vast majority of humans live. Why is it people will participate in things they know will give them 
a disease that will kill them in an agonizing way, but they just ignore it because of the temporary joy that they think they'll experience or pleasure they think they'll experience. Was Esau going to die? Probably not. Just like you and I, if we were out in the field and we'd been doing some activity for all day, we come back, we might be hungry, but will we die? Um, I don't know if you're like me, but I, I have a little reserve. That'll probably keep me over for a day or two anyway. And Esau, I don't think, was that different, but it was his attitude. He didn't care. He didn't care about God's eternal promise. He didn't care about what God had said would be in the future. All he cared about was this thing that was in his face right now, and that was that he was hungry. He was famished. And, and so he, he swore away his birthright to Jacob. Now, uh, when, we, when I taught that lesson years ago, I don't remember when it was, it also tells us something else about Jacob. We, we have this tendency to think because Jacob was a man of the tents and because Esau was a man of the field, that Jacob was kind of a lamby-pamby little wimpy mother's boy, whereas Esau was this big man of the field. But if that were true, then why didn't Esau just clop him upside the head and take the stew? Why bother selling your birthright? He's just a wimpy little guy. Throw him out of the tent. Eat your stew. No, I think Jacob was a little bit tougher than that. And Esau was not willing to tangle with him and therefore he sold his birthright for his momentary lust. On your outline, there should be this um, passage, Philippians chapter 3 noted. Philippians chapter 3, reading at verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Those whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is a wonderful statement here. I mean, it clearly distinguishes between the temporal and the eternal and casts great damnation on those whose God is their appetite, or as the King James says, is their belly. And, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds, their minds are focused on earthly things. That's what consumes them every day and consumes their planning. Everything is earthly. But our citizenship is in heaven, he says. And the Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with his glorious body. You know, we often hear it said that the person is too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. But often that kind of a statement is made by somebody who's jealous. Jealous of the fact that this person has more true understanding of what reality is. And reality is not um, our dinner today. Reality is not our income this week. You know, reality is, is, is not this physical world. Reality is our relationship with God. That's the ultimate reality. 
And although we can't go live in a monastery or become some of a, kind of a monk sitting on top of a hill uh, under an apple tree, uh, you know, kind of like the guru in, in uh, BC comic, you know, he's sitting on top of the hill there. Uh, we, we can't be like that. But at the same time, you know, how we live this life has got to be determined by our attitude towards God and his promises. And, and to realize, we, we sing the little song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are way, laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And uh, sometimes we almost take the attitude that that's all that is, is a ditty. But, but it's, a, it's a statement of eternal truth. And it all boils down to our attitude. You know, we've got to do the work. We've got to work hard. We've got to be concerned about the matters that, that involve us day by day. But, but our overall attitude has got to be governed by the fact that this is a passing moment that God is in charge, He will bring us through, and therefore anxiety has no root, no basis, no basis in our lives. But it's a natural condition. <laughs> there isn't one of us in this room who hasn't been anxious, probably even this past week, over something. But when we're consumed by it so that it, it renders us un unable to function, then of course it becomes a great sin in our lives. And God needs to deal with that because He will carry us through. It may be hard, and we may, it may seem like we're sliding downhill, but He's there, even when we can't see Him, if we're trusting in Him. Of course, it all depends on us, in the sense that we've got to be maintaining a right relationship with Him. Uh, we've got to be trusting in Him, and, and at least being honest with Him. That's the most important thing, as we'll see a little bit later here. Honesty with God is probably where it all starts. We can actually honestly, Lord, I can't, I have a hard time believing you in this. Just tell him that. Doesn't hurt him, honey. God can handle it. It's got very broad shoulders. The appetites of the flesh have got to be disciplined by our spirit. And this is easier to say than it is to do by a long shot. If, if we don't keep our flesh under control, it will destroy us. And we see this in this passage in Numbers. We don't know how many thousands died, but we, will, we do know that in the long run, in the wilderness, the entire crew from 20 years old and upward would die in the wilderness. I mean, it would kill them all. So we're talking about at least 2 million people probably, and 1.5 million people will die in the desert because they didn't keep their flesh under control. There is a phrase you've heard a lot. It says, if it feels good, do it. That cannot be the motto of a Christian. The man or the woman of God must live by the motto, if it glorifies God, do it. And you know, if we kind of test each day, am I doing this because it feels good? Or am I doing this because it glorifies God? Am I reacting to this person because it feels good? I'm getting it off my chest. Or am I trying to glorify God in my reaction to this person? In order to do this, we can't do this unless we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. That only comes to us as we study God's Word, obey God's Word, and live a life of prayer. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. He doesn't say you may not, or possibly you might avoid it. He says if you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So it's walking by the Spirit, which is what we need to be seeking out. And again, walking by the Spirit is not walking around, you know, humming a religious tune with your eyes turned to heaven, bumping into lampposts, you know. 
in life or, or not dealing with situations because you're saying, oh, I'm glorifying God. Don't bother me with your problems now. No. It's glorifying God in being bothered with people's problems, your own and people's, other people's problems. You know, the scripture says we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and cry with those who cry in all things to the glory of God. The 10th verse of Numbers 11. Numbers 11, verse 10. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why hast thou been so hard on thy servant? Why and why have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou hast laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived this people? Was it I who brought them forth, that thou shouldest say to me, Carry them in your bosom, as a nurse carries a nursing infant, to the land which thou didst swear to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people, because it is too burdensome for me. So if thou art going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in thy sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. Moses' prayers are wonderful. <laughs> Moses speaks to the human condition when you read his prayers. We discover in this passage that Moses is not Superman, you know, man of steel, able to leap tall buildings and feed two million with flesh in the desert. He's human as we are. He's subject to exhaustion, discouragement, and depression. He was a man of great faith, but he was burning out, burning out. I mean, he had two million people on his back. You'd burn out too if you had two million people griping to you all day long, particularly when they were griping about things he couldn't do anything about. Where am I to get too enough meat to feed two million people out here in the middle of nowhere? There aren't enough lizards around, even if they wanted to eat lizard. So he finally came to the place where he went to God and he complained said, God, you're making me carry the burden that belongs to you. Did I conceive this people? Is it my responsibility to carry all these people like a nursing infant into the land of Canaan? Moses became so depressed that he wanted to escape the whole mess by dying. He says, Lord, if you really love me, kill me. You know, slay me on this spot. Now, Moses' prayer is very blunt. That's what I like about Moses. He doesn't beat around the bush bunch of long, pious phrases, you know, before he gets around to kind of, you know, talking a little bit about what he wants God to do. He just flat out tells God, this is the way I feel, God, and this is what I think you ought to be doing, and why aren't you doing it? Is God offended? Does God say, I'm going to fry you, Moses? No. God is not offended. God is never offended by honest prayer, no matter how blunt. I think I mentioned to you once before that years and years ago, we read a book called Christ the Tiger by Thomas Howard, who is Betty Elliott's brother. And that's one of the things he kept harping on. If you are honest, you can't offend God. He wants honesty. You know, he doesn't want all this pious baloney. 
He wants us to just tell him flat out how we feel, and flat out what we think he ought to be doing. He's God of the universe. You know, he's not going to sit up there and say, you know. I mean, like all the gods of the heathen. I mean, the gods of the heathen, you're not even sure if you say everything right, they're not going to zap you. So, this isn't the way it is with the living God. He's never offended by honest, heartfelt prayer. Let me, let me go back to Philippians again, this time chapter 4. Verse 6, we read, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, <coughs> shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're not to be worried about anything, but we're to take everything to God in prayer. Everything to God in prayer. Now, it says that we're to do it with thanksgiving, and there are times when we have a hard time doing that. You know, being thankful as we go to God in prayer. It's almost like we, we feel that if we don't say thanks to God first, then he won't listen to the rest of our prayer. It's kind of like an entree here. You've got to butter him, butter him up before you hit him with uh, what you're really praying for. The, the thrust of this passage is an attitude, an attitude deep inside of trust. I mean, why are you praying to God in the first place? Why bother even going to him if, if you're not really uh, believing that he's there listening? God wants us to carry our burdens to him and to dump them all there. And it doesn't matter to him if he's heard it before from you or from me because he's heard a lot of prayers many times over. I mean, he's heard the short prayer help so many times <laughs> that you, you'd think he'd be tired of it, but he's not. And it doesn't always have to be prefaced with a whole lot of flowery speech. In fact, if it's just flowery speech, don't bother. God wants to hear exactly what we're concerned about and just tell him flat out, just as Moses did. Because God not only does not is not offended, but God immediately answers and, and solves the problem for Moses. Look at verse 16 of Numbers 11. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, and I will put him upon them, that they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you shall not bear it all alone. Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. For we were well off in Egypt. <laughs> Therefore the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome, loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, The people are home. Whom I, among whom I am are 600,000 on foot, yet thou hast said, Give them meat in order that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them, be sufficient for them? The Lord said to Moses, 
Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. This has got to be one of the most powerful passages of the book of Numbers. God would not take Moses off the hook. He would not take Moses' life, nor would he shift the responsibility and say, okay, Moses, you've done long enough. You can retire now. I'm going to put somebody else in your place. God would do none of those things. Instead, he gave Moses help. He says, Moses, you go out and you pick 70 people. You pick them and I'll put my spirit on them. Same spirit you have. I will put that same Holy Spirit on those 70 men. You pick them and I'll put my spirit on them. That's exactly what God wants to do for his people. If the task seems too great, God is there to carry us through. However he chooses to do it. I mean, I've heard all kinds of ways by which God has responded. Sending additional help or making the person able to do it himself or herself. Beyond his normal or her normal ability even. I mean, I've even heard where a person was in an impossible situation where God put in that person a language they had never even heard before, let alone ever spoken before. And they were able to talk to people in that language. It was totally miraculous. In Isaiah chapter 41, we read, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be anxious. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That is a promise made by God to his people throughout history. Because it is reinforced over and over and over again from Genesis through Revelation. Do not fear. Do not be anxious. Because I am your God. When we fear and when we have anxiety, we are doubting God. We're doubting his ability. We're doubting that he cares enough to do for us what we need to have done. Because he says, surely I will help you. It's not a, well, maybe he will or possibly he will or I don't know if he can. It's a surely I will help you and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Moses was to select 70 men of good reputation. So obviously he didn't just go around, you know, playing blind man's bluff. He picked people that he knew and others reported were men of good reputation. Men whose walk matched their talk. Men who were not leaders in the complaint department. They were going to help him pastor the flock. And the scripture says they were to stand with Moses at the doorway of the tabernacle and thus proclaim, here am I, I stand with Moses before the living God. Before the living God. They were willing, therefore, to take their share of the ministry. They are acknowledging they are shouldering some of the responsibility. They've all seen what Moses has been through and they know what he's been through. So they're saying, I'm willing to take my part here and to stand shoulder to shoulder with Moses. And God promised, I will give to each of these 70 men the same Holy Spirit who has been upon my man Moses. In this, we have another very, very important biblical principle. God wants his people to be led by godly, spirit-filled elders 
whose testimonies are supported by the life they live and by the reputation they have in the church and in the community. First Timothy has that passage, which is one of the passages anyway that's to be a guideline for choosing elders of the church. First Timothy chapter 3 talks about the men who are to be in the place of leadership in the church. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, elder if you will, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, an elder, then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, which means self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, that is not given to violence, but gentle, uncontentious, free of the love of money. Whoa, when you read a list like that, you know that eliminates a whole lot of people. He must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the, for the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so they may not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. You've all, I'm sure, heard horror stories of people who have been elders in a church, yet in the community they were known for being crooked businessmen or very questionable businessmen. And, and that is a great tragedy because it brings condemnation to the name of the church and the name of Christ. And that's why it's very, very important that people put in spiritual leadership be people who are respected both in the church and out of the church and who have demonstrated by their walk that they are men of God. I mean, they're not going to be perfect. None of us is perfect. But at least they can demonstrate repentance when there is failure and follow through with these um, descriptions. And certainly this is the kind of attitude that Moses was looking for in the 70 men who were to co-lead Israel with him. Well, with the leadership in place and Moses taken care of, God then moved to deal with the main complaint that had started all of this. Where are we going to get meat to eat? We must have meat. We're tired of manna. And that's where God, of course, makes the statement. They're going to have meat until they are sick to death of it. You know, really, that's what happens in the world. Those who reject the call of Christ in their lives and choose to follow the way of the world, it just becomes sicker and sicker and sicker because everything just comes in in, in waves and, and a person just becomes super satiated and, and just totally yuck with the things of the world, to the point that, I mean, read about it. I mean, the people who are looked upon often as high-flying people, you know, stars in this world, and how many of them are socked out on drugs most of the time because they can't handle their rotten life. It looks so glorious from the outside because they have a garage full of Mercedes and, and they have a house on three sides of the continent and, you know, all the rest of it. And, and yet, when you, if, you, if you could be inside their bodies, you'd know that life was absolutely rotten. They can't stand it. 
why would Marilyn Monroe commit suicide at the height of her career, you know, this beauty queen at 36 or whatever she was? Why, you know, why Presley and all these guys? Why does it happen? Because God knows how to give it to them until they're sick to death of it. Sick to death of it. It's not glorious at all. But when it's denied because God says, thou shalt not, then people think, whoa, it's really great over there. It must be. And then if you ever get on the other side of the fence, you find it is hard. It's horrid. But God says, thou shalt not, because he, not because he's a great cosmic killjoy up there, you know, oh, they might have fun doing that. I'm not going to let them do it. It's because God knows it's destructive. It will destroy us being formed and made into the image of Christ. Well, I better stop here and uh, pick it up next week.